Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This statistic may surprise you. The Arctic has lost 75% of its sea ice volume in 40 years. Now, the Arctic may be far away, but this meltdown and other factors will affect our weather in dramatic ways. Today, where we live, we hear from a researcher about how climate change is making our weather more extreme. And later, we'll learn about technology that can help in the fight against climate change. First, joining me on Zoom is a scientist who studies the Arctic and how warming there is linked to shifting weather patterns in other parts of the globe, including in our region. On Zoom with us is Jennifer Francis, senior scientist at the Woodwell Climate Research Center in Massachusetts. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And our listeners can join our conversation as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or you can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at where we live. So before we talk about your research and how our weather has become more extreme in, in, in recent years, Jennifer, I'm curious if I could, I wanted to ask you about how you started researching the Arctic and how visits there when you were younger impacted the work that you're doing today. Yeah, so it's kind of a fun story. Um, my husband and I actually sailed around the world back in the early 80s. And part of our, our trip took us up to the Arctic north of Norway to an island group called Spitsbergen or Svalbard. And of course, back then we didn't have GPS and uh, we got up there and found that the weather information that we could get a hold of was very uh, inaccurate. It wasn't very helpful. And at that time, I had decided when I went back to school that I wanted to study meteorology. So I thought, oh, here's a place that needs some help. Uh, I think I'll focus on the Arctic. So I ended up actually not going into forecasting, but instead going into research. And again, with a focus on the Arctic, initially just trying to figure out more about how the place works in general. But uh, in the last decade or so, I focused more on how the rapidly changing Arctic is affecting weather patterns all around the Northern Hemisphere. So you were there back in the 80s and your research has continued to this day. Have you been back uh, in recent years and, and what have you observed? Mm. So I, the research that I do doesn't require that I actually go take measurements myself. Um, all of the information that I need is available on the internet because it's basically the same weather information that is used to forecast weather and uh, to analyze climate. And so I have been up to the Arctic, but not in a research capacity since I was in graduate school. So when we think about what's happening in the Arctic in recent years, uh, I understand that the temperature there has been rising much faster than the rest of the globe. That's right. The pace of change there, the warming, is about two to three times faster than the globe as a whole. 
and talk about when I mentioned that statistic about the sea ice volume uh, being reduced uh, by 75% in the last 40 years, the impact of that, Jennifer. Yeah, it's staggering, actually. Um, so that's the volume and the aerial coverage of the ice, which is also an important metric. Um, it has disappeared uh, by about half in the summertime. And the summer is when the ice is at its smallest extent. And the reason that's important for all of us and people in Connecticut and elsewhere around the Northern Hemisphere is that when we lose all of that ice, it means that basically the Earth's mirror has gotten smaller. That white ice and also snow cover reflects most of the sun's energy that hits it. And so normally with a lot of ice and snow up there, um, much more of the sun's energy gets reflected right back to outer space and never enters the climate system at all. But now we're seeing a lot more of that energy going into the Arctic Ocean uh, where there used to be ice and now it's much less ice. And so the Arctic Ocean is warming much faster and that in turn uh, melts more sea ice. But it also means that global warming has been exacerbated or increased by somewhere between 25 and 40 percent just because of the fact we've lost this mirror. So it's made global warming much worse. And we know that there are many connections between the fact that the globe is warming so fast and various types of extreme weather. The simplest direct connections are to events like heat waves, which are becoming more intense, more widespread, they're lasting longer. We're also seeing an increase in the frequency of heavy downpours, um, big increases in fact. In the Northeast United States, uh, they've increased by over 50% just since the 1950s. And this is because the oceans are warming much faster, the air is warming much faster, and that means that there's more evaporation of moisture from the oceans into the atmosphere. And one of the impacts of that is to provide more moisture for storms to work with. And so when, they, when you do get a storm, it tends to dump more rain or snow, whichever it happens to be. Um, we're also seeing a big increase in drought, out, especially in the Western states, but also in New England. And these are the really direct connections between really what's happening in the Arctic by exacerbating the global warming and certain types of extreme weather events. A lot of attention on our our planet uh, heating up, Jennifer, but you just mentioned uh, the amount of vapor in our atmosphere, and so that provides fuel to these storms that we've seen. Exactly. So I just mentioned, you know, it gives it more moisture to work with, so we see these heavier precipitation events, but it has a couple of other really important aspects too. So extra water vapor in the atmosphere means that more heat is being trapped. Water vapor is a very potent greenhouse gas, just like carbon dioxide. So it's adding to the effect of the fact that we're dumping all of these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. It's making that heat trapping effect even worse. And also that water vapor is the fuel for storms. Um, hurricanes in particular, when that water vapor in the atmosphere condenses into clouds in tropical storms and other kinds of storms, it releases heat into the atmosphere and heat is what storms need to get stronger. So we're seeing um, strong uh, intensification of hurricanes. Uh, they're intensifying more rapidly. 
And it also appears to be affecting other kinds of storms too, like nor'easters that we tend to see along the east coast of the United States. Well, we've been talking about extreme uh, weather events and trends uh, like drought, like increased precipitation in our region. Jennifer, I was thinking back to uh, the extreme cold that a place like Texas experienced in February. How does that happen? Yeah, so this is um, really the area that I've been working on. So this kind of gets into the realm of kind of indirect effects of global warming. And what we're seeing is uh, because the Arctic is warming so much faster than elsewhere, it means that the difference in temperature between the Arctic and areas farther south is actually getting smaller. The reason that's important is because that temperature difference is really the main factor that drives what we call the jet stream, which is a river of very fast winds that encircles the northern hemisphere up at altitudes where jets fly. And the jet stream is really what creates most of the weather that we experience, everything except tropical storms. Um, so anything that affects what happens to the jet stream is going to affect our weather patterns. So by reducing this north-south temperature difference, we're actually seeing the west winds of the jet stream get weaker. When the jet stream gets weaker, it tends to take bigger swings to the north and dips down to the south. And those big north and south dips in the jet stream um, are what allow things like cold air outbreaks to happen in the winter. So the jet stream is really the boundary between that very cold air to the north and the warmer air to the south. So when we get one of these big southward dips in the jet stream, like we saw in February, that caused the terrible cold spell um, that affected Texas and Oklahoma and um, and the Midwestern states so severely, it was because one of these very large dips in the jet stream happened and allowed that very cold Arctic air to penetrate very far south. So we think these kinds of big uh, dips in the jet stream are going to happen, happen more often. Um, the flip side is when we get these big northward swings in the jet stream, it allows warm tropical air to extend much farther north than it normally would. So it tends to create these uh, sets of extremes side by side. On one side, you get uh, very warm temperatures, and then right next door, say in the middle of the country, you get these very cold outbreaks. You're hearing Jennifer Francis here on Where We Live. She's a senior scientist at the Woodwell Climate Research Center in Massachusetts. As we're talking about climate change and the impact on our weather patterns, you can join our conversation, especially if you have a question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Jennifer, when you mentioned the jet stream and the winds getting weaker, so in, in a way this is also the weather is staying around, staying around longer, kind of getting stuck in one place? Exactly. So that's another uh, aspect of these bigger north-south swings in the jet stream. We know that when they happen, they tend to create a weather regime that tends to stay in one place for a long time. So again, just thinking about that very long-lived cold spell that affected uh, the south, southern Midwestern states, it was around for a very long time, which of course made it that much worse. Um, but we also see the same kinds of things happening in the summertime where we get a regime becoming very persistent that leads to, say, very dry conditions for a long time, which can then lead to the drought. And this is exactly what has been happening out in the Western states. We've had 
a situation where the jet stream has been tending to divert storms northward away from the western states and that has contributed in a very big way to the persistent drought that's been going on out there for literally years the last several years i mean it's not every single month and every single year but overall it's been a very persistent drought um, and of course that is very closely connected with the extreme wildfires that we've been uh, witnessing out there the last few summers and falls well, we talk about a climate change. Scientists are always very clear to say that without a lot of research, you can't uh, connect climate change to a particular weather event. But you're saying with all of the evidence and trends that we're seeing, this is make climate change is making this weather more likely to happen. Exactly. And that's the best way to say it. So we see these individual events. And again, yes, we can't say definitively right off the bat that climate change contributed, you know, some fraction to its uh, its severity or its, or its chances of happening. But we can definitely say that uh, events like the ones I just described are much more likely in a changing climate than they were, say, back in the middle of the 1900s. And for people who still look at this and say, well, this is natural, this is weird weather happens, uh, how do you respond to that? Well, I point them to some information that isn't just coming out of the scientific community, but it's coming out of um, companies like insurance companies. So um, Munich Re, for example, is one of the largest reinsurance companies, and they, of course, pay very close attention to extreme events because, they, of course, they cause a lot of damage that they end up having to pay for. And their researchers have found that just since 1980, uh, extreme weather events have tripled. So these are billion dollar extreme events that are caused by weather have tripled just since 1980. And interestingly, they track other kinds of extreme events as well that are not connected to weather or climate change. And those have not increased over time. So that tells us that um, it's not just the fact that there are more people living along the shore or there's more expensive infrastructure and property. Uh, in certain areas, because we would see this uptick for all kinds of extreme events. But instead, we're seeing them connected with weather and climate change. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Jennifer Francis, senior scientist at the Woodwell Climate Research Center. We're going to continue talking after the break and take your questions to 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We know New Englanders love to talk about the weather, and we know climate change is something many of our listeners care about. Today we're talking with a researcher about how global warming is leading to more extreme weather in our region and around the world. There are several factors at play that are causing these large shifts in our weather patterns. Jennifer Francis is with me, senior scientist at the Woodwell Climate Research Center in Massachusetts. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, we started off the conversation, Jennifer, talking about uh, the Arctic uh, warming faster than any other part of the globe. Can you talk more about why that is? 
Yes. So there are several factors in play here. Um, the easiest one to understand and explain is the fact that the ice up there that floats on the Arctic Ocean, as well as the spring snow cover on high latitude land areas have both been declining rapidly, especially in the last 40 years or so. And what happens is when we lose that very bright white ice and snow, um, instead we're left with a much darker surface, whether it's uh, the ocean under the sea ice or soil under the snow. And so that much darker surface then absorbs much more of the sun's heat. And that in turn warms the ocean, it warms the soil, that melts even more ice and snow. And so we get this uh, vicious cycle that sets up. And so um, that, that ends up, uh, that leads to a lot more energy being absorbed into the system, which creates that extra warming that happens um, up in the Arctic. Another simple one is the fact that, uh, that I mentioned earlier, we have now a lot more moisture in the atmosphere. That moisture is also a greenhouse gas. Water vapor is a greenhouse gas. And in places that are very dry, like the Arctic, the Arctic atmosphere is like a desert. When you add a little more moisture to the atmosphere, it traps a lot more heat. And so that also contributes very directly to the rapid warming that we're seeing in the Arctic. You talked about uh, the jet stream earlier. Can you talk more about how ocean currents are shaping our weather that we're seeing here, Jennifer? Yes, this is a very exciting area of research that's really been moving rapidly. And uh, again, this is an interesting story that does connect back to the fact that the Arctic is warming so fast. And what we're seeing is that um, the Greenland ice sheet has been melting much faster. It's putting a lot more fresh water into the northern Atlantic Ocean, which of course contributes to sea level rise. But the other thing that it does is that extra fresh water floats. It's, it's much lighter than the denser, saltier water that exists in the North Atlantic. We're also seeing much more fresh water coming out of the Arctic Ocean itself. And that's because the rivers are putting more fresh water out because of heavier precipitation and also because of the melting sea ice. And that fresh water from the Arctic Ocean also ends up in the North Atlantic. And if you were to look at a map right now of the uh, differences from normal of ocean temperatures, you would see there's this bullseye, this big area of cooler than normal temperatures just south of Greenland. And this is because of that extra fresh water that's sitting there. That fresh water um, inhibits the vertical mixing of the ocean water in that region. So that warmer Atlantic water really cannot get up to the surface as easily. And so we end up seeing this bullseye of cooler temperatures. And the reason that has an influence on Connecticut and New England, for example, is also that uh, inability to mix that water acts like kind of a barrier to the Gulf Stream, which is the current of very warm water that starts in the Gulf of Mexico and flows around the corner of Florida and then up the East Coast. And so it runs into this area where the vertical mixing is um, is inhibited and it acts kind of like a, a barrier to the Gulf Stream. And so what we're seeing is kind of a slowing down of the Gulf Stream waters. It's resulting in much warmer um, ocean temperatures off of the whole eastern seaboard. 
And again, those very warm temperatures supply a lot more heat and water vapor for storms to use. So when a storm does come along, it's got more energy available there and it ends up dumping more precipitation on us and also creating stronger storms as well. You mentioned earlier that insurance companies have been paying attention uh, to these dramatic uh, weather events and the trends in the last uh, few decades now. I'm wondering if you can talk more, Jennifer, when we think about uh, how our temperatures are fluctuating, the fact that this warm uh, water um, off of our coast and and how it impacts industry like our fishermen or even uh, agriculture. Yeah. So there's a lot of effects really that come into play here. Um, One of them is that by having all that warm water sitting off our coast, it's actually causing sea level rise to be faster in our region than it is in as a globe as a whole. Uh, So faster sea level rise means that we're um, experiencing more coastal flooding uh, at, at big high tides. And also if a storm were to come ashore, we see those storm surges being higher um, ocean waves or storm waves are um, riding on top of a, a higher ocean and so they reach farther inland and do more damage. So, you know, the basic line there is that coastal flooding is is much worse now than it used to be. Um, in terms of agriculture, uh, we're seeing um, these connections to these stagnant weather patterns that we were talking about a few minutes ago. And the fact that we're seeing uh, longer droughts in the summer But at the same time, we're also seeing these heavier precipitation events. Uh, We're seeing a tendency for what we call weather whiplash, which is kind of an interesting concept where you've got one weather regime uh, in your area that sits there for a long time. Let's say it's uh, very warm and dry. And then suddenly it's replaced by a very cool, stormy pattern that, again, lasts for a long time. And we're seeing evidence that these weather whiplash events are also starting to happen more often, which, of course, wreaks havoc with agriculture. If, uh, for example, we had very warm temperatures back in March and those were replaced by um, much cooler temperatures earlier in April and even some snow last week. Um, And that's generally difficult for especially trees that are fruit trees that are budding perhaps earlier than they should be and then all of a sudden there's a freeze and it may kill those buds so uh, there's a lot of implications for for these changes that we we're seeing happening more often now Mm. when we think about new england and summer i think about lobster rolls uh, the implications for the lobster harvest jennifer Yeah, so the lobster uh, situation has been evolving over the last few decades. Um, As the ocean temperatures have been warming, we've seen that they're just too warm now for lobsters to be happy south of Cape Cod. So all along the um, Long Island Sound and the south coast of New England, um, we've seen very few lobsters. Uh, in, th- in fact, I think the fishery was even closed in Long Island Sound for a while. I don't know if they've reopened it or not. But the flip side of that is north of the Cape, where, of course, the ocean temperatures are much, much colder. Um, the temperatures have actually become more favorable for lobsters. And so um, there's an abundance of lobsters up in Maine and Nova Scotia in those areas because, you know, the lobsters are actually happier now than they were. So um, it's very disruptive, though, for marine food webs like this to have these big temperatures changes over a very short period of time. 
And it's also very difficult uh, for marine biologists to predict exactly what's going to happen because, you know, it affects everything from the kinds of algae that bloom because they're temperature dependent all the way up through the little fish and bigger fish that eat those little fish. Um, everything gets affected when there's these big, fast temperature swings. And so, you know, we talk about tipping points and abrupt changes in the climate system. A lot of those surprises that, um, that we are expecting to see have to do with the living part of the system more so than the physical part of the system, which would be, you know, things like how the winds are going to change and that sort of thing. Jennifer, I'm talking with you uh, this week, uh, Earth Day, and just a, a couple of days. I know the Biden administration is going to be announcing a, a new pledge under the Paris Climate Agreement, and we think about uh, reducing our emissions. But when you talk to the public, when you are explaining your research to people who aren't scientists, what are you, some of the, the big takeaways that you want to stress? Well, I think uh, this story that I'm able to tell that connects the extreme weather events that everyone has been observing in their own lives, their own neighborhoods, and it's affecting their wallets, it's affecting their property uh, values, their insurance rates. I mean, people are witnessing with their very own eyes some of these changes that are happening um, in various ways. And so to be able to explain to them, you know, why this makes all kinds of sense, and we've been predicting these kinds of things to happen for decades now, um, and how they're connected to a globe, a warming globe, uh, people get it. You know, they are really interested to hear about that now. So, you know, even though the increase in extreme weather events is, is bad news, it's also opened up a new communication channel um, in in ways that I think people have been able to engage and understand better what's going on. And so as a result, we're seeing a lot more, uh, a bigger section of the, of the United States population believing that humans are changing the climate. And as a result, they're in favor, much more so now, of trying to figure out ways to do something about it. And, you know, we're seeing it at the local level, we're seeing changes happening at the state level, um, you know, a lot more investment in renewable energy, a lot more interest in electric cars and electrification in general, um, improving our electric grid to handle uh, renewable energy resources. And of course, the market is driving it as well. You know, it's now much cheaper to build new renewable solar or wind um, generation facilities than it is to build a new coal plant, for example. So there's a lot of forces all coming together, uh, despite the efforts by the previous administration to uh, to not let this sort of thing happen. It, but it has continued for a lot of different reasons. And I think people are starting to appreciate that this is the future. This is where the jobs are going to come from. This is where we need to head. Mm. Well, it's been really interesting speaking with you, Jennifer Francis, Senior Scientist at the Woodwell Climate Research Center in Massachusetts. We will tweet out a link uh, to uh, a recent article or, that you wrote uh, from Scientific American about your research and, and what you discussed with us here on the show. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Lucy. It's been a pleasure.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to talk more about uh, technologies uh, that are at play to help uh, with this fight against uh, greenhouse gas emissions and the impact of climate change. But first, it's Connecticut Public Radio's April membership campaign. We talk about a lot of different issues on where we live. We talk to a lot of different people, including researchers like Jennifer Francis. Please support this programming with the pledge of support. Here are two of my colleagues. That is the number that you can call, or you can go to wmpr.org slash donate. I'm Kat Pastor. I'm here with Frankie Graziano. And uh, we're interrupting where we live today because it is our April pledge drive. It's a big one. Um, So we are, uh, depending on our listeners, for their pledges of support. Um, If you've been listening to Connecticut Public for a while, you know that – we are a listener-supported station. We're not beholden to advertisers. We're not beholden to um, anybody but our listeners. So everything that we do is in service to you guys. And uh, because of that, we uh, need your support to keep that going. Uh, so again, 1-800-584-2788 or wmpr.org um, slash donate to check out uh, to check out the th- Great thank you gifts that we have available for you guys this this go around. And uh, the website's pretty easy to figure out. You could either become a monthly sustaining member, which means that a certain amount of money is going to be taken out of your bank account every uh, month. It's a set it and forget it. You don't got to think about it. Or you can become a one-time donator. Uh, no matter what, anything that you can give, uh, we really appreciate it because putting this stuff on the air isn't free. How you doing, Frankie? I'm doing well, Kat. Um, I'm very excited to be Pitching is part of where we live because I just wanted to be able to shout out my great, uh, amazing colleagues, Lucy Napothanchel, Tess Terrible, and, of course, Carmen Baskoff. Man, where we live is on an amazing run of late with some great shows. All the way from, obviously, these guys have Governor Lamont on from time to time to make sure that they're keeping the governor and his administration in line. That's what you expect from Connecticut Public Radio to make sure that we are serving our Connecticut residents as well as the folks who donate to our station but from confronting Asian uh, anti-Asian violence in the United States um, to a great uh, program that they had on even going as far as uh, the new Sia movie and how mainstream media portray- is uh, portraying autism, vaccine passports, uh, talking about COVID-19 in prisons and, and solitary confinement. It's just a great run of shows. I had the privilege to go on with Nicole Leonard recently and talk about va- equity in, or inequity in vaccine distribution. Um, Lucy's team is just doing a really good job in telling the stories that people need to hear so that people can not only acquaint themselves with Connecticut but learn a little bit more about what Connecticut residents need. If you support that aim, call 1-800-584-2788, 1-800-584-2788. There's some great gifts this month, Kat, including... Including this great um, Mother's Day bouquet that that's out there, the for a gift of twelve dollars and fifty cents a month, this Mother's Day vibrant spring bouquet. I like saying it that way, Mother's Day vibrant spring bouquet. Or you could get a dozen gourmet chocolate dipped strawberries. Remember, you don't have to get it for your mother. You can get it for that significant other in your life. You can get it for me. You can get it for Pat. Or excuse me, Cat. I don't know why I said Pat. I'm having a a great morning. You can get it for Cat. You could get it for. Uh, pretty much anybody that's special in your life, $12.50 a month supporting Connecticut Public Radio. Yeah, that's right. And another gift that uh, they have uh, going on right now is a Roku Express. 
for, I believe, $12 a month. Um, Roku Express. Roku Express. And as somebody who just gave up cable, went cable free, uh, and it hurts me every single day, but a Roku is actually a great option. So uh, I think that's a really exciting offering from Connecticut Public. Uh, and you can also like catch up on Roku. BBS shows. What'd you say, Frankie? <laughs> I have like eight Rokus in my house. Oh, I need more. I only have one in one TV, but I need one in every room. They're that great. Um, so again, the number is 1-800-584-2788, or you could go to WMPR.org slash donate, support where we live, support Lucy and the crew. I mean, what other show lets you call up and yell at Ned Lamont? Doesn't that make everyone happy? You got to support it. Um, so again, we rely on your donations. Uh, and and if you're listening, you know that in the past year, this station has expanded so rapidly. So I can promise you that your money is going to be used very well. It's going to be used very wisely. And it's going to go very far. So um, yeah, I encourage you to donate. Uh, as I said before, we let you listen for, well, obviously we let you listen for free. Um, but, you know, it costs money to put this stuff on the air. So uh, we rely on our listeners. Uh, to get that done for us. So again, 1-800-584-2788 if you want to call in. Um, or, or if you're like me, you kind of, uh, you don't really want to talk on the phone. So you could go to wmvr.org slash donate. And there you can see all the great thank you gifts that we have for you. So um, again, thank you so much for your support. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. Let's keep this train going. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, Republican House Minority Leader Representative Vincent Candelora joins us to talk about many issues before the Connecticut General Assembly, including a bill to remove religious exemptions for childhood immunizations, that bill moving forward now to the Senate. We know you have some opinions on that one. We hope you join us. That's tomorrow. Now, today we're talking about climate change and the impacts where we live. Shifting away from fossil fuels to clean energy can help reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, but my next guest says it can't be the only solution to curb climate change. Joining us on Zoom now, Akshat Rati, reporter for Bloomberg News. He covers climate and energy. Akshat, welcome to the show. Hi, it's nice to be here. So we've been talking about the consequences of climate change on our region and around the globe, uh, much attention, of course, on reducing carbon emissions. But you've written alone, this won't be enough. We need to get our emissions down as close as possible to zero. So can you talk about negative emissions and what that means? Yeah, I think you're right. Absolutely right that the first priority that any entity this be individuals or companies or countries uh, should have is to cut emissions. But because we have left the process of cutting emissions to so late, you know, we've known about uh, greenhouse gases that humans dump into the atmosphere causing warming for more than 30 years, uh, but we haven't really done enough to reduce emissions that now if we want to hit uh, the climate goals that we have set under the Paris Agreement, uh, which is to keep temperatures below two, 2 degrees Celsius uh, compared to industrial period, or preferably 1.5 degrees Celsius, then we will have to use these technologies um, that will suck carbon dioxide out from the air and put it back underground. Those technologies sound really interesting, but uh, are they cheap and will they become more reliable, Akshat? So it's a set of technologies. I, I think, you know, we don't typically think of trees as technology, but that's what they are. They are sucking up carbon dioxide from the air and putting it into the ground. So 
among the set of technologies that can do this job for us, trees are the easiest to understand and the cheapest perhaps to plant. But trees on their own are not going to be enough because if we rely just on trees for these negative emissions, we are looking at planting trees that would cover uh, the land size of China. And we don't have another China worth of land on this planet, which means we'll have to use other technologies. Um, and these other technologies involve things that, you know, again, take their inspiration from trees. So there's a, a technology called direct air capture, uh, which is essentially an artificial tree uh, or an air filter. So it operates as an air filter. It passes la large amounts of air from um, uh, into a machine where selectively carbon dioxide is trapped. It is then compressed and then buried deep underground, either in old oil and gas wells or just uh, in uh, formations where carbon dioxide can be buried safely uh, for thousands of years. Uh, when we talk about uh, planting trees, should countries put more emphasis on stopping deforestation, uh, helping maintain existing old growth forests, Akshat? Absolutely. I think one thing we realize is that when we think about planting trees, the best trees are the trees that already exist. And that's not because uh, of, uh, you know, attachment to old trees, which is a great thing and we should have them, but because forests that already exist are a better sink of carbon dioxide uh, than if you plant new forests. That's because there is a diversity of species that operates in a forest, uh, which all contribute in the ecosystem to draw down carbon dioxide. So yes, I think the first priority in uh, the tree solution is to try and stop deforestation. Uh, but again, because the problem is so big, essentially it's all of the above. We will also have to plant forests. And when we do, we should try and not plant them tied to one or two species because uh, scientists tell us that if you do that, you um, create vulnerabilities in these uh, artificial forests that we are creating, where because of having only one or two species, you may see a, uh, a risk of them uh, dying out either in a flood or in a drought or getting caught in a wildfire. Mm. Can you talk about carbon offset programs? I think you've described them as bogus. Yes, I mean, this is sadly the the problem with carbon offset programs because, you know, they were sold to us as this idea where we can continue to pollute as we do and then buy these offsets from reasonable sounding organizations around the world that would give money to somebody somewhere far away to pull out carbon dioxide that you've just put into the atmosphere. Sounds fantastic. The problem is that it doesn't work. We've uh, here at Bloomberg News uh, ran a number of investigations. Uh, one of my colleagues in California focuses on them um, uh, uh, for a quite significant time. And he has found that many of these carbon offset programs are organizations selling offsets based on trees that would not have been cut had the money not come to them. They would have just existed and kept doing the job that they are doing of trapping carbon dioxide. But now somebody's making money on top of it. So that's not how an offset should work. An offset needs to show something called additionality, which is 
because you paid money, someone took out uh, a ton of carbon dioxide additionally beyond what they or what trees that they look after would have done without that money. And proving that additionality when it is linked to forest offsets is just extremely hard. You're hearing Akshat Rati here on Where We Live, joining us on Zoom. He's a reporter for Bloomberg News covering climate and energy. Uh, Akshat, again, uh, this week, uh, we're going to hear from the Biden administration about uh, re-entering the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, coming up with new goals for cutting emissions. What can you tell us? So what we know so far from our reporting, uh, and my colleagues in Washington, D.C. have done a fantastic job uh, trying to uh, get a peek into what we might expect from the Biden administration. And what we've learned is that one thing that uh, is something that uh, the U.S. has to announce is something called an NDC. It's a sort of jargon term called nationally determined contribution, which is a, uh, a clause that you have to fill if you're part of the Paris Agreement. And that essentially tells you what a country is aiming to do in the next five or 10 years with their emissions. So we've probably heard uh, a number of goals that say we'll reach net zero emissions by 2050. That's great, but that's 30 years away. What are you doing in the next five or 10 years? That's what uh, we are expecting to hear from the Biden administration. Uh, The expectation is uh, that they will announce cutting emissions by 50%. Uh, relative to what the emissions were in 2005 within the next decade. Now, you're based in London. Uh, Give me an idea of what you're hearing, uh, the international implications. And uh, when we think about uh, the U.S. changing their emissions goal, uh, U.K., I believe, has has even a bigger goal than that. Yes. uh, What we know is that the Biden administration's plan this time is not just that the U.S. announces its plan, but because the U.S. is announcing it, its plan and its sort of re-entry into climate diplomacy uh, after Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement, they want other countries to come along and make bigger pledges. So for comparison, if we take the same baseline uh, that uh, you know the U.K. or the uh, EU, the European Union has, then the UK is looking to cut emissions by 68% uh, relative to 1990 by 2030. And the EU is doing a 55% reduction. Now, uh, we just got confirmation from the Prime Minister here in the UK, uh, Boris Johnson, who is introducing legislation to cut emissions by 78% by 2035. So there's clearly uh, momentum here in in Europe, but also in the US and in China, which last year said they're going to reach net zero emissions by 2060. Now, what we need to see is what happens and how are they going to execute on these plans in the next five to 10 years. Mm. And what about the U.S. Uh, credibility uh, issue, Akshat? Uh, you know, again, uh, when the we entered into the Paris Agreement under the Obama administration, we saw what happened under the Trump administration. Now we're back to uh, the Biden administration and uh, being real, being serious about uh, taking this problem, um, making it a priority. But you know how we're viewed by uh, other nations. You know how that will impact. Uh, the work moving forward. Yeah, the U.S. is currently the second largest emitter of greenhouse gases. 
that is on an annual basis. Historically speaking, if we take a cumulative look at this problem, then the US is the top emitter in the world. And so there is no way to solve the climate problem without the US being a part of it. We also know that when the US is a part of it and stays consistently a part of it, other countries follow. So uh, it is definitely a good thing that the US is acting. But now from an international perspective, the US needs to show that this is not a uh, one-time commitment, that say there's a change in administration, essentially a change in the party that controls the Congress or the White House, uh, that they will not walk back on their commitments. And that is something that's going to be very hard for the US administration in its current form to be able to promise to the world. In the short term, what it can do best is, is set really ambitious goals and show that it can execute on those goals. Uh, but uh, gaining credibility is going to take years worth of work. Mm. And how will Congress impact uh, <laughs> those goals, Akshat? Congress plays a tremendously important role because what the White House does is set sort of an agenda for where the world, where the country needs to go. But Congress, and this is both uh, Democrats and Republicans, have to work together to set laws and pass budgets and funding for the entire country to be able to act. Now, climate change, you know, is a problem about greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, but those greenhouse gases are attached to essentially every activity that we operate, whether it's driving, it's eating food, it's uh, turning on electricity at home. Uh, each activity we do has some amount of emissions attached to it. And so if you're going to tackle this problem, you have to change the physical economy. And that is not something that only the White House can do. It has to involve all actors in government, but also private industry. Akshat Rati, again, is a reporter for Bloomberg News covering climate and energy. We'll be sure to tweet out links to your great reporting. Akshat, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. It's Connecticut Public Radio's spring membership campaign. You can support where we live, all the interesting conversations we have and the people you hear from each and every day. You're able to join in on the conversation. We hope you appreciate this program and all the others on Connecticut Public. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how you can support it. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio, hosted by the great Lucy Napolthanchel. Thank you for kicking it to us, Lucy. I am Frankie Graziano. I'm joined alongside Cat Pastor. Cat, we are having a great day of trying to talk about some great programs that we have on Connecticut Public Radio, like Where We Live, like the Colin McEnroe Show, like Audacious, and like one of my new favorite programs in Connecticut and in the world, Disrupted with Kalila Proundine. But not just that, but... Remember, this stuff does come to you at a at a at a cost of free ninety nine. Um, and the important thing to note is that we really do appreciate your support. And what that means uh, right now is we're hoping that you can pledge uh, some more dollars to support our station by calling one eight hundred five eight four two seven eight eight one eight hundred five eight four two seven eight eight. Some great gifts that you can get. But besides the gifts, um, just know that you're supporting a great radio station and. 
We're also just more than a radio station. We're also on television. We have some great programs that go out there. Wherever we can get the news to meet you, we'll get there. Um, and some great talent that we've been able to hire, just like Cat Pastor. So uh, if you support those endeavors, please call right now at 1-800-584-2788. That's right. Or you can go online to WMPR.org slash donate. Uh, and that way you can have um, – you have a, it's a pretty clean template on here. You can make the contribution. You can look at all of the great thank you gifts that we have for you. There's a three-mug combo for $12 a month, so you get an audacious mug, a Colin McEnroe show mug, and a Where We Live mug, uh, which is the show that we are interrupting right now to ask you for your support. And uh, that is $12 a month, and I'm a sucker for a mug. So that's a, that's a pretty great combo in my opinion. So again, 1-800-584-2788 or WMPR.org slash donate. Um, I've been here for a year and two months now, a little over a year and two months. So happy to have you, Kat. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I've got to say, since I've been here, this station has expanded so much. Um, We're already like since I started, there's three new shows. There's Audacious, Disrupted and Seasoned. Um, And. It just the just the rate of growth here is insane. Uh, so when you, the listener, donate to us, I can promise you that that money goes extremely far and it is used very well and very wisely. Um, and as I said earlier, we're not beholden to advertisers. Everything that we do is in service to the listeners and we take uh, your criticisms, your feedback and your support very seriously. Um, so we're just asking for a pledge of support today to keep to keep the train going. So 1-800-584-2788. Uh, you can talk to uh, some, somebody on the phone to get that contribution in, or you can go to WMPR.org slash donate if you want like a cleaner template and don't really feel like talking to anyone. And uh, we thank you so much for your support as always.